At Leia Healthcare, we always want to give our members more. So now you get unrestricted access to a world of benefits that will help you stay healthy. From convenient video calls with a GP to get prescriptions online, to easy access to experts when you finally want to do something about your ropey knee or dodgy back. And if you do need to see someone urgently, our clinics are available for minor injuries, all without you needing to put your hand in your pocket. Let's stay on top of your health, in every way. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Insurance provided by Ellipse Insurance Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare. Leia Healthcare Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare and Leia Life is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Unrestricted benefits are available until the end of August. Fair usage policy applies. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. going to be a struggle but that's okay um hi everybody welcome to our new season of murder in the land of oz yay thank you for sticking with us while we essentially panicked for like six episodes in a row being like what are we gonna do 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 we Um, had a fairly set idea of what we were gonna do and then we were like we just like freaked out and then gave you the episodes that we did, which I'm pretty proud of actually. I think we did I think some really we did good like ones. Quite a, like some of those were really good, mostly yours. Um, they were just highly unintentional. Yeah. <laughs> that should be our tagline, Murder in the Land of Oz. <laughs> highly unintentional. <laughs> highly unintentional can be the uh, name of our future dating and love advice Yes, actually, podcast. write in if you would like Ellen and I to have a dating and lifestyle podcast. Because we've asked Zane and he keeps on telling us that we have to like write a thing and like do a test podcast, but I'm sorry, like, don't we already do that every week? Yeah, don't you already know that we have infinite capacity to talk about Bullshit. absolutely nothing? <laughs> um, Ellen, do you want to run us through what this season's going to entail? Yes, I'd love to do that for you. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much. We are going, we're going to be talking about essentially – Indigenous deaths, and that is a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. Um, so please feel free to not listen. There are a lot of reasons why it is going likely to be distressing. Obviously, we always talk about like murder and death and stuff, and it's not necessarily the happiest of topics. But there are a lot of other issues uh, that are associated with this topic. Um, this first case that we're talking about is an Indigenous death in custody. They're not all going to be Indigenous deaths in custody, but there will be several because it is a very massive issue in Australia and elsewhere. Um, I actually just read uh, in the in the minutes before starting this episode while Jess was frantically trying to call me on Skype and I was not picking up um, that – so there was a royal commission into indigenous deaths in custody that occurred in 1987 and in the time from that commission in 1987 to the present day, the amount of indigenous people in custody has actually doubled to like 27.5% or something like that um, to what it was like pre-commission days. So, you know, I think that 
it really demonstrates that it is very much a systemic issue within Australia. It's not necess- it's not a social issue. It's not an issue that is intrinsic to the Aboriginal community. It is a problem with the way that our societies and systems run. Um, I'm going to do my level best to not spend the next five episodes on my soapbox with like a drum and like, you know, going off chops because <laughs> I can be a bit of a ranty white girl about these kinds of things. And I don't think that that is the the most useful way to talk about this stuff. Um, but that's what we're going to be talking about this season. We're going to be treading as delicately as we possibly can and as sensitively as we possibly can, but we definitely don't pretend to be A, experts, or B, speaking on behalf of Indigenous people. Definitely not. Um, and it, as always, like, we are not above criticism, so if there is anything that anybody has any problems with this season, feel free, because, like, we are not above learning. Like, that's what that's why we're doing this, is because we want to have a, bit, a better awareness of this. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. we feel that especially white Australians need to know more about um, Indigenous deaths in general just because they're not reported as much as white deaths are. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot because I know I'm going to be talking a a lot about the um, colonisation, like the white colonisation of Australia and stuff like that and the impact that that had on the First Nations people um, Mm -hmm. because we weren't taught it. Um, we weren't. We were essentially taught in schools, and I think this is the same with a lot of, um, like, with a lot of countries that have been colonized by British people. That we were basically taught to believe that history began when the settlers came, mm-hmm. whereas you know, before then, for thousands and thousands of years, the First Nations people have been working and utilizing this land and living here, and then white people came here and essentially murdered them murdered. All murdered the First Nations people of this country. And that is why we wanted to do these. Um, we wanted to do this topic because we, I, I know that I want to be more educated about this topic because there's a, lot, there's a lot more that we can learn. Um, so Ellen's going to kick us off with the first episode. Um, what are you going to be talking Yay. about tonight, Ellen, or today? So today, today, uh, well, tonight, whatever time it is that you're listening to this, um, happy 3.30 a.m. Oh, did we have any Patreons that we needed to? We'll talk about that at the end. Okay, alrighty. So uh, this week, this episode, we're going to be talking about the death of John Peter Pat, who was a 16-year-old Yinjibandi boy who died in police custody in 1983. And I kept on, like, when I was research, as I've said to Jess, like, this episode has been a very long research. Um, and I kept on forgetting that he was 16. And I want everybody to keep that in mind when they're listening. He was 16, just about to turn 17 when all of this went down. So the death of John Pat was um, one of several deaths in custody that really brought the issue, the issue of Indigenous deaths in custody to greater public attention. It was kind of always known definitely by Indigenous people that there was like a disproportionate number of Indigenous people in custody versus the white population. Um, Tale as old as time, basically in every colonised country, you know, black or indigenous people will make up a greater percentage of the prison population than they do of the general population. Um, and again, that's not because there's any inherent criminalized criminality or whatever in those people. It's because of, you know, the world that we live in. Um, and you know, the, 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 the fact that we are imposing a completely, completely different social and cultural structure on, you know, what is essentially, a entirely different culture um anyway so box down 
but this was this was uh, one of the deaths in custody that eventually, you know, it, it created so much publicity and people heard so much about this case and about some some of the other cases that it actually basically forced the government of Australia to uh, do the Royal Commission, which ended up occurring in 1987. So this case happened in 1983, four years beforehand. The commission took a long time to, like, get it done. Um, and so I'm going to talk about this case a little bit differently than I would a traditional one because we have the benefit of the Royal Commission and all the reporting from that. You know, the story of John Pat's death when it occurred and like the kind of narrative that was uh, put forth, I guess, from initial like inquests and trials and stuff like that, we now know that the facts of the case are a little bit different. So I'm not going to bother really. So there was a there was an inquest and then um, several trials, I believe, uh, about the perpetrators of this case. Um, I'm not going to bother going through all of that evidence and rigmarole and stuff I'm going to talk about this is going to be a two-parter so I'm going to talk about a little that a little bit in the second part but basically I'm just going to talk to you about what the Royal Commission found to be the case in this death and having said that as I said before you know we have a legal system that is a certain way and that legal system has found you know what I'm about to tell you to be the facts of the case as it were Um, But that doesn't mean that the commission was perfect or, like, above, you know, any kind of criticism because it absolutely was not. And there are lots of criticisms that you can read online in very complicated legal language about the problems with the Royal Commission and the biases that were placed on – or you all know the biases that impacted uh, the findings of the Royal Commission. It is definitely not perfect. Um, And, you know, it's not not infallible, but it is – to what I read, basically the most um, comprehensive overview of this case. And now that was a lot of preamble, and I'm going to get into the actual information, which I'm sure is what everybody wants to actually hear. <clears throat> so John Pat was born on the 31st of October in uh, 1996 in a town, which I didn't Google the name of to pronounce it. It's either Roborn or Robin, like Melbourne. Right. I... <sighs> Let's go with Robin. Robin. I'm going to say it like that. It's probably wrong and we're probably going to have Remember one of my – Remember that time you called Azaria Chamberlain Azaria? That's all I right. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. So in Robin, a town in the Pilbara in Western Australia. So Robin has a pretty interesting history as a town. Um, it was a former gold rush town uh, that got, you know, a lot of its money from the gold rush star and then also like farming and cattle stations and stuff like that. Um, so in the late 1800s, the town was majority European, um, in the town itself. And then the majority of the indigenous people kind of lived on the outskirts of the town, working on properties mainly as like laborers and shearers and stuff. And then from the early 1900s to the 1960s, uh, Indigenous people were actually prevented from living in the town and even from uh, travelling in and out of it by police curfews and stuff. So there were all these like restrictions placed on Indigenous people so they couldn't actually live within the town. Um, and so as a result, most of the Indigenous people lived on the very outskirts of town in camps and on reserves. And then as other towns in the region began to develop and Robin lost a lot of its population uh, from, you know, workers and stuff chasing some other dream elsewhere um a very gradual shift kind of happened where the town kind of you know 
the curfews and restrictions on Indigenous people were lifted. Uh, they were able to actually live inside the town and Robin actually became a majority Indigenous town. But this doesn't necessarily mean that it was like, you know, a, a utopian paradise. In fact, it means the exact opposite. Uh, tensions between Indigenous people and Robin and the police were had been historically high since basically the town's inception. Like there was a lot of ill feeling and you know feelings of from from you know the indigenous side feeling like targeted persecution those kinds of things and from the police side as well feeling like you know they were working in like some like old west town of you know always having to do these arrests and you know and obviously it's very important to mention that the police were almost entirely white um so, yes, the police-to-non-police ratio in Robin was five times greater than in similar or indeed more developed towns in Western Australia. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but there's something like, you know, there was, you know, for every ten people there was one police officer or something like that. So there was just way, way more police than the, the population of the town would make it in, would indicate. That was a long tangent as well. So, as I said, John was born in 1966. His mother, Mavis, was 16 years old when he was born, and his father, Len, was 36. Um, so, Mavis and Len met when Mavis went to visit her parents who worked at Mount Florence Station, and she had kind of been, like, promised to Len um, as per, like, Indigenous custom and decided to marry him, but the relationship didn't really work out, Um and Mavis said that Len was like a drinker and didn't treat her very well and everything like that. So she ended up leaving him and began a relationship with a man named Nick Lee, who was a very well-respected community leader. And John lived on Mount Florence Station for a while when he was a child, and then he moved to, with his mother and stepfather and his siblings to the town of Robin when he was nine years old. And they lived on the Aboriginal Reserve, which was closed in 1975, and all the people living there were forced to move to the, quote, Aboriginal Village, which was a housing commission estate that basically all the Aboriginal people in the town lived at that was rife with problems like alcoholism and domestic violence and stuff like that. And as a result, the police would do like regular patrols in this housing estate. Uh, John left school in his second year of high school and went to work as a station hand at Pyramid Station, but he only worked there for a few months before returning to Robin. His mother described him as a happy boy who never caused her trouble, and she said that, you know, he was outgoing, and he loved the bush, and he loved the work that he had gotten to do at Pyramid Station. So John had been in trouble with the police a few times before. When he was 15, he was placed under an order from the Department of Community Welfare um, as a result of pleading guilty for two charges of aggravated assault. Um, and so essentially, he was kind of like oh, the responsibility of the Department of Community Welfare, but he he lived with his mother and father like he wasn't taken away from them or anything like that his mother and stepfather sorry um so the police account of that incident that led to that initial arrest was that the police said that they approached john and three other youths while john was carrying an unopened bottle of beer while walking on the street one day the police confronted the youths and pat argued with the police and hit one of them with the beer bottle um, and he was placed in the police van and taken to the watch house. And allegedly, when Pat got out of the van, he kicked one of the officers in the balls. Um, and the police said that John wasn't drinking, uh, had been drinking, but wasn't drunk. And John, on the other hand, said that he was very drunk when police stopped him and arrested him. He said he admitted to hitting one police officer with a beer bottle, but said that he had been handled violently by the police when he was placed into the police van. Um, 
and was had, had almost been knocked out by like the severity of you know force they used to put him in that police van. And then when they arrived at the police station, John said that he was fighting the police off like in a you know struggle when he kind of accidentally kicked the police van. So uh, a year after that incident in September 1982, John was again convicted on a charge of aggravated assault on a police officer. Um, he had been charged with disorderly conduct by fighting, and when he was arrested and taken to the police station, he allegedly hit an officer named Constable Hole in the face. Remember the name of that police officer. Okay. Again, Pat said that he'd been drunk at the time and that he himself had been kicked and otherwise injured during the course of his arrest. John pleaded guilty for this offence and did 70 hours of community service, um, and he was picked up an additional four more times between late, late 1982 and 1983, all for non-violent liquor-related offences. So, as I've kind of mentioned already, the police presence in Robin was significant, with officers at the commission uh, testifying that the town was patrolled frequently to, quote, show the uniform, essentially to just, like, demonstrate to the people of Robin that, like, the police are out here, like, we're watching you kind of thing. Uh, none of the officers stationed at Robin, all of whom were white except for two police aides, had any particular training or even any experience working with Aboriginal people. The majority of the arrests made in Robin in the time period before the death of John Pat involved alcohol. They were almost all like public intoxication or disorderly conduct kind of arrests, so like non-violent crimes essentially. Over 75% of arrests were made for drunkenness or offences on licensed premises, um, and the majority of the remaining offences were related to alcohol, including things like fighting after drinking and stuff like that. So the population of Robin at the time was around 1,670 people, with about 860 of those being Aboriginal people. And the six months or so um, uh, before the deaths of oh, surrounding the death of John Pat, I'm sorry, 730 people were arrested. Uh, with almost all of those arrests being Aboriginal people, meaning something that like 90 to 99% of all the Aboriginal people in the entire town were arrested for some reason in a span of six months. As said by the commissioner, almost none of these arrests were for violent or serious crimes. Quote, it was an endless round of arrests for offences against activity, which was no doubt distasteful to many non-Aboriginal people. It was greatly related to Aboriginal people living in the open, drinking in the open, and being highly visible. so that's just a little dusting of context there is so much more that i could say but i'm not going to because it's just you know it's a sidebar it's a very relevant contextual sidebar but it's a sidebar nonetheless um so to the night in question john's pat's movements throughout the day aren't 100 percent known um it was likely that he'd spend the day hanging out with friends drinking in various locations um, it was known that he'd spent part of the day at a man named Ashley James's house, who was one of his friends. So prior to the incident in question, John was sitting with a number of his friends, which included Ashley James, sitting in a vacant area on a hill that was nearby. It was like between like the town centre of the pub and like the Aboriginal village. And this area had a few local nicknames, including Plonk Valley. It was basically just like a vacant lot that people sat and drank at. You know, it's not that sensational or unusual. Um... So Ashley James and a few other people from the group, including John, decided that they wanted to go to the pub's bottle shop and get some booze to take back with them. And the pub, the Victoria Hotel was the name of the pub, and it was reasonably busy that evening. Um, The hotel had two bars, uh, the top bar and the bottom bar, and the Aboriginal people tended to drink in the bottom bar and everybody else would drink in the top bar. And there was a bottle shop attached to the side of that as well. 
So on that day, there was a meeting of the Western Australian Police Union of Workers um, in the afternoon of the 28th of September at Caratha that was attended by union officials and about 20 police officers from around the Pilbara region. Five officers from the Robin Station were in attendance, Senior Constable Ian Armit, Senior Constable Alan Bordas, Senior Constable Terence Hull, there's that name again, mm-hmm. uh, Sergeant John Devaney, and First Class Police Aide Michael Walker. When the meeting concluded, all of the attending officers kicked on to the Caratha Golf Club for a few beers. So each of the Robin officers had about six or seven 200 milliliter glasses of beer each. I don't understand why you would have seven glasses of 200 milliliters of beer when you could just have one pint. The logic of that does not make sense to me. Why would you There's have a lot of going seven... back and forth to the bar. A lot of going back and forth to the bar. Like just get a, lot a pint. Of Save you your time. Up. Just get a pint. Save everybody's time and money. So they had six or seven of those little, little boys each, um, except for Sergeant Devaney, who was the designated driver and had only three beers. Uh, the Roman officers, as well as three officers from the nearby Wickham Police Station, then went on to the Victoria Hotel in Robin. So the police officers were out of uniform and off duty, and it was said that they had never all attended the pub together before, like as a group. Um, only a couple of them had actually even gone to drink there, just like individually, and it was not really a sensible thing to do. Like they, you know... A, a group of off-duty police officers at the pub, like, come on, let's let's all use our brains here a little bit. So at the police union meeting, there was kind of like a vibe with the police officers. Like, they didn't feel like the meeting had gone very well. They had wanted to talk to the union officials about, like, the kind of things that they were experiencing, policing, like, in, in Robin and in, like, the Pilbara in general. Um, so it was a little bit of, like, airing of grievances and stuff. And they wanted – the Robin police wanted the – union officials to come back to Robin to kind of experience a night out there and see what was going on. But the union officials, uh, for a reason that I now can't recall, couldn't go that evening and were going to come the next morning instead. So the police officers were kind of feeling like their voices hadn't been heard, I guess. Mm. And there was definitely like a, not necessarily like a, a big anger or anything like that, but like, you know, that kind of like group collective boisterousness kind of feeling the commissioner used the word boisterous i think that's a little bit infantilizing but there was that kind of vibe there was a vibe it's you know the vibe of the thing so the roman police arrived at the victoria hotel around 9 p.m outside of the hotel an altercation was occurring between ashley james and his partner Anne stock so as they had made their way down from the hill uh to the hotel to buy alcohol an argument between the two had broken out and no testimony from eyewitnesses could give any insight as to what the argument was about in particular. Um, it, as I said, this is like the only pub in Robin, so fights and altercations weren't infrequent. And once like a, like people started hearing a fight going, like some people went out to see what was going on. Like one witness, one witness went out and then was like, oh, this isn't a particularly interesting fight and then like went inside. Oh, no drama. So, yeah, they were just like, oh, this is boring. Like this isn't even a real issue to get worked up about. So... The Robin police were pulling up as this incident was underway. The police noticed that there was a group of eight or so Aboriginal people in the car park and then Ashley and Anne at the very front of the pub. So I'm going to say this sentence a lot throughout this episode. So if you're playing your drinking game, this is your, this is one of your little hints. The witness testimony of what exactly happened differs considerably between parties. Uh, not just because... Uh, every 
like every sneeze that happened in this story, there's eight different versions of what happened. And I've kind of triangulated as best I could kind of what the commissioner found and what other people have said to have some kind of narrative truth to it. (laughs) May not have been what actually happened, but this is just like, you know, combined from all these different witness accounts. Um, So, yes, as I said, quite a few of the people who witnessed it have been drinking and then quite a few people were literally like, it was so insignificant that I cannot force my brain to record it. Like, it was not a big drama. Um, So uh, the accounts vary about whether or not within the course of this altercation, Ashley James actually hit Anne Stock. Anne said herself that she had been hit, but other testimonies kind of varied about whether she'd been hit at all, and if she had been hit, where she was hit, how she was hit, how severe the hit was, etc., etc. So the commissioner said, quote, Suffice to say, there was at least some physical contact between the two, which was capable of constituting at least a minor assault by Ashley James on Anne Stock. So while the police are, like, coming out of their car and going into the hotel, Constable Armit called out to the group of Aboriginal people in the car park, something along the lines of, quote, Your mob have had enough, you can all go home. Constable Hull then chose to approach Ashley and Anne, and I am going to quote the commission here, told them to piss off, although stronger language may have been used. Ashley Jane swept the the uh, stronger language that may have been used was quite strong, and I'm not going to repeat it because it has the, the big bad word in it. But yeah, oh no. serious, serious stronger language may have been used. So Ashley James swore Constable Hall in response, and the group of Aboriginal people began to move along, followed by Constable Hall and Constable Bordas back up the hill. In their evidence later on, Hull and Bordas claimed that Ashley James had made a comment about Hull being off duty and tried to egg him into a fight, but the commissioner didn't believe this evidence, um, as James said in his testimony that he didn't actually know that Hull was a police officer until after the incident had occurred. Like, he didn't recognise or realise there was a police officer until afterwards. Um, And the commissioner also said that... Um, well, Hull said that in this testimony that James, Ashley James actually hit him during this incident, which the commissioner didn't believe and there was no other eyewitness testimony to support it. And the commissioner was like, okay, so you're saying that this guy hit you and then you just let them go back up the hill, like, mm, doubt. So Hull and Bordis watched as the group moved up the hill back in the direction of Plonk Valley. They said that the group uh, of Aboriginal people yelled back abusive language at the police as they were going. And once the constables were satisfied that the group had indeed moved on, Hull and Bordis went to join their colleagues in the top bar. So throughout the night, Constable Hull exited the top bar a few times to look outside, ostensibly because he was concerned about Sergeant Devaney's car in which they had all travelled to the pub. And he said that he was concerned that one of Ashley James's group might do something to the car, so he went to check on it a couple of times to see whether or not the group had truly moved on. And he testified that gradually throughout the evening, the group had indeed moved closer back down to the pub. And as the commissioner noted, the direction given by Hull to move on wasn't like a legal-like it wasn't like a – he was not on duty, so no, it wasn't yeah. like an official – they weren't in violation of anything by coming back to the pub. No. Um, so – It's like some belligerent the, old man just like, get off yeah. my lawn. Like, yeah. yeah. Essentially just being like, okay, go. Like, that doesn't hold any kind of – he was probably just as pissed as any other guy that was at the pub who wasn't an off-duty policeman. Yeah. Well, the commissioner – I didn't actually include it, but the commissioner did say that while the police officers had been affected by alcohol, they weren't drunk. They'd right. had, like, a few, like, of those little beers and stuff like that, but they weren't 
so drunk as to be unaware of their actions. Right, okay. So the bottle shop of the hotel could be accessed by staff members through a door in the top bar, meaning that the bartender could serve at the bar and the bottle shop at the same time. Other hotels are very similar. Like there's just a door between the, you know, a doorway with no door separating the the bar from the bottle shop so they can go back and forth. So the buzzer went off that indicated that somebody had entered the bottle shop and the bartender, Kathy Park, went into the bottle shop to serve this person and that person was Ashley James. And again, take a shot, the account of what happened next varies between witnesses. So Kathy Park told a slightly sensational, everybody mimes bringing a glass to their mouth. So Kathy Park told a slightly sensationalized version of events where like the police like charged Ashley James and were like yelling at him and like carrying on and stuff like that when he went into the bottle shop. Um, but the commissioner was like, she's being like, basically said like, she was being honest in the sense that that's what she believed happened, but it was more dramatic than what likely occurred. Mm. The police version of events was that one of the police like notified the group that they had seen, that he had seen Ashley entering the bottle shop, but none of the officers would own up to being the person that actually saw him first. Uh, the commission had determined from, like, the position of where they all must have been si- sitting at the, the bar that it was Constable Bordas who must have seen and alerted the officers to Ashley's presence. And he did this thing. It was like those stupid riddles where it's like, you know, my mother is 91, my uncle is 82. If I was born in September, what's my favourite colour thing? He was like... <laughs> He was like, Sergeant Devaney was sitting in this spot and he said that he heard Constable Armit talk from his right and so therefore Constable Hull must have been seated. <laughs> and I could not follow that logic at all, so I didn't bother to <laughs> I didn't bother to interpret it. <laughs> but apparently Constable Bordas was the one who was capable of seeing into the bottle shop from where he was located. Um so Sergeant Devaney testified that one of the officers, either Constable Armit or Constable Hull, in his recollection, called out something into the bottle shop to the effect of, what are you doing in there? I told you to get on your way. You've had enough. Get on your way. Armit said that it, uh, he did indeed pop his head into the bottle shop doorway and asked Ashley what he was doing. And Ashley said that he was going to buy the alcohol and then go home. Um, and Armit said in that testimony that he could tell that Ashley James was affected by alcohol, but not so much that he shouldn't have been served. Mm. So he was not so drunk that it would have been like an offense for the bartender to give him a bottle of alcohol. Yeah. yeah. So satisfied with that, Armit then returned to the bar, but then realized Hull wasn't there. Hull testified that he left the bar to see if there was a police van outside the pub because uh, at that point in the evening, the Robin police van should have been doing a patrol. Um, Again, there are many and varied accounts to the degree and severity of the next exchange, but it's generally accepted. Thanks for playing along, Jess. Generally accepted that uh, Hull, having left the bar and walking into the bottle shop, from the street entrance, had, quote, high words with Ashley James. Um, Hull claimed that Ashley James again threatened to get into a fight with Hull, and Ashley James said that while he did swear at Hull, um, he just said that he was going to buy some alcohol and move on. Yeah. That he wasn't intending to start anything. Hull then went outside the bottle shop, in his words, to wait for the police van, which should have been showing up as part of the regular nightly patrol. In Ashley's view, he believed that Hull was going outside to wait for him so he could be to begin an altercation um so i'm going into a lot of detail about this moment because this is kind of like the the thing that the catalyst for what happens next um so 
like on one hand you have the police, uh, specifically Constable Hole, who has gotten himself really, really worked up about nothing essentially of this guy Ashley James being at the hotel after being told to move along. According to the witnesses, both police and civilians, and as I've said, the incident with Ashley James and Ann Stock outside the pub that started this whole thing wasn't really anything more than a domestic, and while, like, that's not great, it was also not the kind of, like, level of thing that required this amount of police attention or intervention, especially from an off-duty. much response, especially from people that are off-duty. Exactly. But for whatever reason, Constable Hull had a bee in his bonnet about the whole situation. And whether that bee was motivated from a sense of professional responsibility, like, you know, although I am off duty, I have a I have a duty to my constituents to blah, 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 which is what Constable Hull said that he was like, you know, doing doing his job, although he's not on duty. Um, or if it was an issue of a white police officer acting above and beyond what was necessary to prosecute an Indigenous person, you know, that's the whole issue at play here. But regardless of the intent, you know, this is the catalyst to what happened next. So, again, versions of what happened after Const- what happened after Constable Hall exited the bottle shop differ. But essentially, when Hall left the bottle shop, he basically tripped over John Pat, who was waiting outside. He warned John Pat to move on, and John replied, "I'm waiting for Ashley." Constable Hall said that when Ashley came out of the bottle shop. Ashley basically immediately began looking to for a fight and raised his hands as if to defend himself or, like, he got into, like, a boxing stance. Um, they had words. Hall testified that he said something to Ashley to the effect of, you're carrying on like a girl, Ashley. All you want to do is rip, which means fight. You are going to get into trouble well and truly. You have been told to go. Now go. You've only just gotten out of the regional, which means the local prison. And then the fight began. Um, other witnesses testified the fight didn't begin instantly after Ashley James exited the bottle shop, but after a few minutes with John Pat and Ashley James leaving the bottle shop and beginning to walk up the hill with Constable Hall following behind them and the fight breaking out after that. Uh, James contests that Hall threw the first punch while Hall, of course, maintains the opposite. The commissioner made no finding about who was actually responsible for the first punch but stated that Hall was responsible for the fight beginning as he had made mention of a fight to Ashley several times and had taunted him several times by saying he was acting like a girl, which is obviously the worst possible thing you could be called. Um, uh, the commissioner also deferred to the evidence of a witness who was seated in a car so he couldn't hear anything that was going on but he saw a white man, the description of who matched Constable Hall perfectly, following two Aboriginal men up the hill. And although the witness couldn't hear anything, he assumed that the white man must have said something provocative to the Aboriginal men. So one of them turned around suddenly, and the other grabbed him by the shoulder in an attempt to pull him away from the confrontation. The witness didn't stay to watch what happened next, but after that moment is when the fight broke out. I guess I just had to keep on reminding myself that these men were, what, around 16, 17, and this was like a fully blown... This is adult. like an adult man who is a police officer, man? and yeah, John Pat was sixteen. I can't, I didn't write down how old Ashley James was, but I don't think he was like fifty. Um, so the commissioner stated the like basically the uselessness of trying to describe what actually happened in the fight itself. Like there is no way to give like a and then this police officer punched this person kind of thing. Like there's just so many different again, so many different versions of the events that it is just not possible to pin together a coherent kind of blow-by-blow, if you'll forgive the pun, like description of what happened. But basically the fight began with Hull, Ashley James and John Pat 
When Constable R met back up in the top bar, realised that Hull had been gone for a while, he went outside to check what was happening and saw that Hull was in a fight with what he was outnumbered essentially by men and went out to support Hull. Sergeant Devaney, a short while later, thinking that Ahmet and Hull had both been gone a long time, went outside to see what was going on and saw a crowd of people outside and the two officers again outnumbered and the fight underway. And Sergeant Devaney chose to go to the Robin police station to bring the on-duty officers in the police van. Constable Bordis and police aide Walker left the bar kind of one after each other to find out what was going on and then realising that there was a fight to go and support the other police, although police aide Walker only participated in the fight in a limited manner. There were approximately eight Aboriginal men, including Ashley and John, on the non-police side that were kind of in and out of the fight at various times. There were around 30 to 40 spectators who varied in levels of intoxication, and therefore it was extremely challenging to piece together a clear description of what actually happened during the fight. As the fight was going on, Cappy Park, the bartender, learning that there was a disturbance going on outside, came back into the top bar to call the police. So both the Robin police van and the Wickham police van were were at the Robin station. Pardon? They're all there. Well, there's the on-duty police officers. Yeah. yeah. To call the real police whose, like, job it was to do the arresting that night, not, you know, to be punching on. Um, So two sets of police vans were on the way to the hotel, and the arrival of the police vans essentially brought an end to the fight. So uh, Police Ed Walker's role in the fight was basically he intervened at some point when Ashley James was fighting with Constable Armit, um, put him on the ground and sat on him so he couldn't participate in the fight anymore. Um, Police Ed Walker was actually Ashley James's uncle, so he was like, I'm going to just – I'm going to pull you back. Yeah. Um, John Pat had fought with Constable Armit and with Constable Hall during the course of the fight, as did Lennis James, who was Ashley James's brother. And there were several occasions throughout the fight where John Pat could have sustained a serious injury. So basically the purpose, the commissioner's main purpose was obviously to determine what happened to John Pat, but in that it was to determine whether or not the, uh, the event that caused John Pat's death happened in the course of this fight. And although he, the commissioner felt that he couldn't rule specifically as to the particular incident that caused the injury that later caused John's, John Pat's death. He determined that it did happen in the course of the fight, and he, he spoke of these several occasions that I'm going to mention now that could have been the cause of the injury. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, cool. So um, I, I can't believe I've written this same sentence so many times. That I did not realize how many times I was going to be saying this out loud. Both Constable Armit and witness descriptions of the particular event differ. There was definitely an incident where John Pat had fallen to the ground um, and then then Constable Armit fell on top of him, basically. So in Armit's testimony, he said that, he said that, you know, he had, Pat had fallen and Armit had fallen on top of him. And then once they were in that position, sorry, Pat had fallen like backwards uh, from a standing position to the ground, like, yeah, back of the head hitting the concrete, Mm. essentially. Um, And then Armit fell on top of him. And when they went in that position, Pat got up again, they struggled, and Armit once again kind of wrestled him to the ground. Armit then said that he was kicked by another person in the fight, and Pat got away, running to the side of a Toyota Land Cruiser that was parked nearby. Here, he and Armit again exchanged punches, 
but Armit stopped to take off his watch, which had gotten loose, and Pat escaped again, again falling and hitting his head. So in that description of the events, Armit has given three times where Pat's hitting his head or John's hitting his head, and it hasn't really technically been anybody's fault. Um... Some witnesses to the fight describe seeing an Aboriginal man who may have been John Pat getting kicked in the head by police. And there was, again, more testimony to suggest that uh, Pat was um, treated roughly when he was put into the van in a manner that may have also caused injury to the back of his head. So the commission accepted that there was an altercation between Pat and Armit that resulted in Pat falling to the ground and hitting his head, but didn't really accept Armit's version of events due to the medical evidence, which I'm going to go into more detail of in the next episode. But in essence, the fatal injury to John Pat was a severe injury sustained by the back of the head coming in contact with a flat, unyielding surface that would have forced the brain to collide with the front of the skull. Mm. So something like falling and hitting your head on the concrete, falling, like knocking your head backwards. I shouldn't have acted that out. That made me go far away from the microphone. Um, Hitting your head backwards on, you know, a hard surface. Um, So since that that was the injury that caused his death, it couldn't have been possible that Pat fell to the ground and sprung up again to get Russell back down and keep on fighting. He would have basically been down for the count. Um, and there was witness testimony that supported this. Quite a few witnesses said that after the arrival of the police vans, there was an Aboriginal man lying down on the road. Um, but the drivers of the police vans didn't say that they saw anybody lying on the road. So when the vans arrived, the arrests were made. Uh, Lennis James was arrested first and placed into the Robin police van. And then Brian Munda, Roy Smith, Peter Coppin and John Pat were placed into the Wickham police van. Armit said that he, along with another officer, carried Pat into the van, but no other officer said that they were the one that helped, and conveniently, Constable Armit couldn't recall who it was that assisted him in putting John Pat into the police van, even in his own notes that he made only a few days after the event in question. Witnesses to the event say that they saw John Pat being thrown into the back of the van like, quote, a dead kangaroo. Oh. So... There's uh, another issue that kind of uh, brought into question Armit's version of the events is some other wounds other than the fatal wound that was sustained by John Pat. So he had um, broken ribs and damage to his aorta as well. Um, And these wounds could have been caused by something like a person falling on top of him. Um, But the postmortem examination determined that these injuries were made post or perimortem. So if Pat if Pat sustained these injuries in an altercation with Constable Armit, he wouldn't have, like, sprung up afterwards, if you know what I mean, no. like, the because the injuries were were given at the moment of, or like, post-death or uh, just before death, he wouldn't have then gotten up and kept on fighting. I'm going to quote the coroner, he, uh, the commissioner here, sorry, because his wording makes a bit more sense. However, I mentioned another possible scenario. There are reasons, I do not say that they are absolutely decisive, for entertaining doubts about Armit's account of what happened after he fell upon the body of the deceased, who was alive at this point in time. Uh, if If one rejects that part of his account and poses the possibility that Pat lay relatively still on the ground following that fall and was loaded into the van from that position, one has an incident capable of producing the fatal injury and perhaps one of the other injuries, and a scenario which meets some of the difficulties to which I have referred, which I didn't refer to, so that was not very good quoting from me. 
And there is another explanation that the commissioner offered for the damage to John Pat's ribs and to Jose Water, which I'm going to get into in the next episode. So the evidence of John Pat being at some point during the fight, whenever that happened, knocked out, satisfied the commissioner that he had sustained the fatal injury during the course of the fight. Although again, he couldn't definitively indicate what specific action led to it. He also found that the police in the course of the fight didn't use excessive force. And I'm going to quote him again with no comment. Insofar as any evidence suggested that John Pat was struck a blow from a fist to the body and as, as a result fell backwards, the striking of such a blow with a fist does not constitute, in my view, excessive force. The evidence from a whole body of witnesses is that at least Ashley James, until restrained by Walker, Lennis James, Jeffrey Lockyer and John Pat were, on, were in an ongoing basis fight with fighting with police officers and in the course of doing so were kicking at them and or striking at them with fists. Upon that basis, it cannot generally be found that a blow with a fist to the body causing a backwards fall was an excessive use of force. The same observation would apply to pushing and shoving generally and generally to the use of force commensurate with the force being used against the police. So that argument there is basically like, if you punch a police officer and then a police officer punches you, you can't say that the police officer used excessive force. And I... And I said that I was not going to make any comment, but I'm lying. Police should be held to different standards than citizens. End of that opinion. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Mm. So Mm. from the hotel, the arrested men were transported to the police station in the vans. um, And then there was a little bit of more fighting, I guess you would say, that occurred after once they arrived at the police station. Again, different versions of the events, etc., but there was eyewitness evidence um, from a woman named Mrs. Holden and her son to support the fact that there were several assaults made by police on the prisoners once they got out of the van. So Lennis James was removed first from the Roven van, and Lennis said that uh, two officers pulled him from the van and punched him, kicked him, and threw him to the ground. The police said that James would initially not come out of the van, so Constable Bordis leaned in and pulled him out. Constable Hull, who was at the back of the van, said that James came out swinging, um, essentially, like, you know, with his fists in the air, and Hull caught his arm in the air and they both fell to the ground, where there was a bit of kind of like struggle for control before Hull managed to subdue James and then he was taken to the cell. Um, Then uh, the next person to get taken out of the van was Brian Munder. That was uneventful. He was just taken to the cell. And then again, there are two stories as to what happened to John Pat. The poli- this is a little bit complicated and weird. The police version, it was essentially that John Pat was told to come out of the police van. Bordis leaned into the vehicle to summon John, then stepped aside from the van. John then came to the doorway of the van and went to, like, he put his foot down as if there was going to be a step underneath the van and then stepped out into nothing, essentially, and fell and to fell. the ground heavily. So... John Pat had been transported by the Robin police van before, and the Robin police van had a step, but he was in the Wickham police van this time, and the Wickham, yes, the Wickham police van didn't have a step. So the the other Aboriginal men in the van at the time said that John was pulled out of the van and onto the ground by police. The commissioner rejected the police assertion that Pat had fallen merely because he missed a step. The commissioner said that if the police really decided, as they said that they, they, the police said that like, we realized basically right away that, oh no, he's missed the step kind of thing. And the commissioner said if they really did realize that on the night that he'd fallen from missing a step, 
then they would have warned the other men as they got out of the van about the missing step and not to fall like Pat did, but they didn't warn any of the other men exiting the van. So either they didn't care about the three other prisoners falling flat ass on their face exiting the van, or John Pat didn't just miss a step. The commissioner found that John Pat, being in and out of consciousness on account of his head injury, did not hear the command to get out of the van. Uh, Borders put his hand in to, quote, get him going out of the van, and John was easily able, because he was like semi-conscious or almost unconscious, he was much it was much easier for him to be pulled from the van from just a small amount of like grabbing force, um, being able, being unable to resist due to his lack of consciousness. And he was pulled from his seat onto the ground. So he didn't miss the step, but he wasn't necessarily purposely pulled out of the van was what the commissioner found. I think he was pulled out of the van, but you know, I'm not a commissioner. The police then said it took some effort to get John Pat um, up from lying on the ground. They believed he was playing doggo, a term that I've never he- heard before, but essentially like fucking around with them. You know what I mean? Like, oh no, I'm on the ground. I can't get. They would like thought he was putting it on, essentially. Right. Um, as to not, as so he wouldn't be taken into the cell. And the witness, Mrs. Holden, did testify that she saw a uniformed police officer kick a man who was lying on the ground, but she later revised that testimony and said it was possible the kick was more like a nudge. Three of the police officers testified that they, quote, nudged John in an attempt to get him off the ground, but the commissioner believed it's it was a big difference a... between a kick and a nudge. Bit, yeah, yeah. The commissioner was basically... Your feet, like... Yeah, exactly. Um, the commissioner basically found that it was a, like, it was... Four stronger than a nudge, but not as strong as a kick or a push that they used to get John Pat off the ground. Uh, Constable Armit then went to the ground and lifted John Pat up. He, uh, Constable Armit said that he was supporting part of John's weight as they walked to the juvenile cell, um, and that John was like kind of walking, but he was like dragging his feet or whatever. But the commissioner didn't believe, based on the medical injury. evidence. Yeah, that it was possible that John Pat would have been capable of walking in any way, essentially. Um, so, yes, the police basically testified they didn't believe that Pat was unconscious or semi-conscious. They thought that John was, like, really drunk and messing around, while in reality he was essentially dying throughout this situation. So then Armand brought John Pat to the juvenile cell of the Robin prison, uh, Roy Smith also said that he was assaulted when he was removed from the van and Constable Hall admitted to punching on with Smith when he got out of the van. He said that Smith came out of the van basically looking for a fight and Hall tackled him to the ground, tackled him and pinned him to the ground. And the commissioner did find this to be an excessive use of force. Um, in all, when it came to the unloading of the prisoners, the commissioner said, quote, my conclusion about the unloading of the prisoners is that it was not competently nor professionally carried out. It is nothing short of disgraceful that three of the five prisoners ended up on the ground. At least two prisoners were involved in some sort of struggle with the police, and I find this to have to have been avoidable had Hull, in particular, exercised some restraint and judgment. So, John was placed into the juvenile cell sometime between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m., um, and if you remember, the fight started at 9, 40, uh, 9 o'clock, so this is a very small window of time. Uh, the juvenile cell is in, uh, located entirely separately to the adult blocks in a different part of the jail complex. And Constable Pusey, who was one of the on-duty police officers at Robin, who was not involved in the fight, 
uh, was told to go to drive out and go and talk to a Department of Community Welfare worker named Bob Hart. As Pat was a juvenile, so uh, the Department of Community Welfare needed to be notified of this arrest, basically. Constable Pusey did so at around 10.45pm. The adult cells were checked uh, around the same time by Constable Young, the other on-duty police officer. Now, he was the one that aided, uh, he helped the off-duty police officers unload the prisoners from the van, but he wasn't involved in the fight himself. Um, at 11.30, Young asked police aide Gilby to go and check on John Pat, as Young had forgotten to do so during, the check of the, during his check of the adult cells. Gilby did so, and he found John Pat lying on his back on the ground in the juvenile cell and immediately thought that he was dead. He went and told the other officers, so they went to look, and, you know, they did a cursory exam- uh, like look to see if John Pat still had a pulse, found that he didn't. Uh, a doctor was telephoned for that doctor arrived and determined that John Pat was indeed dead and made a short initial examination of the body. And the police enacted the you know, police procedure when a sudden death occurs. They took photos and such, and uh, the Department of Community Welfare was informed of the death. And that was the police version of the deaths. So obviously having a juvenile dying in police custody is bad enough, particularly if the reason that his death wasn't un- was the reason that his death was not found out about was because an officer forgot to check, check his you. cell. But the commission deter- determined that the truth was actually much worse. He determined that Constable Young actually found John Pat's dead body on his rounds at 10.30pm and that Young and the other police officers conspired to arrange events so they could minimise their responsibility for his death. So basically, they found his dead body and then concocted this whole version of events so that, you know, it didn't oh, seem like oh, their fault. No. Yes. And we are going to get into all of that in the next episode. In part two. In part two. Wow. That is Honest- horrific. Honestly, when I first, like, was looking at cases to find it, I found this case and I just read, like, that part of it, that, like, they forgot to go and check on the juvenile cell. I was like oh my god, that is the worst thing that I have ever heard of. Nope, that's not the worst thing. But it's not that all the worst thing. No. It gets so much worse. It also gets a lot more confusing and legal, so apologies in advance for that hot mess. we get involved with um, royal commissions. Okay, <sighs> well, I'm very disturbed and upset. I mean, I guess the thing is, like, as white people, and I have totally acknowledged this privilege, like, Say if you or I were involved in something like this. Mm-hmm. Like in a fight like, or like covering no, no, up a like, death? You know, say, no, no, like I mean uh, like a fight at a pub. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was an incident like that. Like white people wouldn't be worried. We're not worried about like getting arrested like that, you know? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I get Like it's just that acknowledgement of this privilege that we have because of the colour of our skin that, you know, if people are drunk and disorderly, like – you know, nothing like that would happen. And then as soon as – I even I'm think not saying that the it fact... doesn't happen. I'm just saying that, like – No, I'm, it I'm doesn't. That yeah, it doesn't absolutely. Happen. I'm not saying that it not, doesn't happen to white people, but a lot more often, as, you know, as you said with the statistics of um, Indigenous people in custody, like, mm-hmm. it's just this immediate prejudice from white police officers that just mm-hmm. feel like that they – it's just unreal. Mm-hmm. I think about the fact that John was picked up for four – um, like being drunk in public offences uh, between 1982 and 1983. Imagine a white 16-year-old 
there's no way a white 16-year-old no would ever be arrested four times. Like, it just wouldn't no. happen. You you know, um, I'm probably, actually, that's actually something I wanted to talk about as well. Um, there's a really important um, petition going on at the moment called Raise the Age. Mm-hmm which um, is about – because basically in Australia we have the minimum age for um, someone to be uh, arrested in Australia is 10. Which is insane. Which is insanity. How um, a 10-year-old – no. Yeah, so they can be arrested and they can be charged and then they can, and they can be brought before a court and locked in a prison. So the minimum age old. in Australia is 10 years old. Um, so there is um, raisetheage.org.au um, is a where you can go to sign the petition against um, you can you can sign the petition in order for us to raise the age. Um, you know they're not talking about drastically raising the age; they're talking a minimum of at least twelve. Yeah, um, I think that makes a lot minimum, more sense. Which is the minimum of a lot of um, a lot of countries. Um, Nikia Lu, who we spoke about in our Patreon episode, is one of our. Um, like favorite podcasters to listen to and also just one of my favorite humans in the world. Um, she has an incredible Instagram video about the um, the petition, so I'd highly recommend you all to watch that. But it's just, I mean, as as you were talking about like what happened, about him being, you know, him falling on the ground, him, you know, being thrown into the, the police caddy and then, you know, being pulled out mm-hmm. or missing the step. It's like he's a 16-year-old boy. He was boy. a 16-year-old boy. He was a 16-year-old boy. 16-year-old boy. And these grown-ass men were like, oh, actually, he fell and hit the step. It's like you have a duty of care. If you are yeah. going to be acting true, like, like – Yeah, exactly. Even if it was true, you have a duty of care and your duty of care was not met, you know, to, to be acting like, you know – if you're a police officer, and this, this again, this was 1983. Things are a bit different, but, like, a bit. Um, a bit. Even since the Royal Commission, like, how many people have been killed and, like, how many Indigenous Oh, yeah, Indigenous is like, it didn't fix anything. And, like, that's one of the biggest no. complaints about the commission. It's like, okay, cool, you've determined all these things. And nothing has changed. Um, and that seems to be, like, a um, common thread with a lot of the commissions, like, when – and not just about Indigenous deaths in custody, but a lot of commissions that have been brought up against, not much has been Well, done. there was the commission into um, the juvenile detention places. Yeah. Uh, that, again, like, you know, somebody can recommend or a commissioner can recommend findings and changes and stuff like that, but it takes so much more than that finding so or that ruling. Like, it's it needs to be structural change and, you know, Police officers need to be trained and we need people who aren't police officers dealing with a lot of problems that the police officers face. Yeah. You know. Because you know, you can't expect you know, on the bare like on the barest of minimums, like you can't expect like a police officer in the short amount of training that they do to mm-hmm. be able to cover the wide range of mm-hmm. issues that they face. And and that there are like, you know, people that can um, you know, indigenous leaders that could work with indigenous people mm-hmm. and people that have um like expertise in the mental health field and stuff mm-hmm. like that because it's just and a lot of people who are like 
people who are not in support of the whole like defund the police movement are like well who's going to solve murders and stuff and it's like no police should solve murders but social workers and mental health professionals and you know people who are people that have the training people that have the training should be dealing with the issues that requires that training and that and very not just police brutality sort of yeah and the very presence of a police officer can escalate a situation beyond yeah. what it requires i mean i was um so I was out of town during the um, the first Black Lives Matter protest that was here in Brisbane. So I didn't mm-hmm. see the – apparently, the, like, Brisbane had one of the largest attendances in the country. Mm-hmm. There was, like, over 40,000 people as well. Um, the second one, there was another um, – there was a march about Indigenous deaths in custody about three weeks later. Mm-hmm. And the presence of police was – unbelievable like I cannot even begin to describe like even myself like I wasn't attending the march like I was on my way to work Mm -hmm. and it was nerve-wracking like Mm -hmm. it was insane like people in like full gear gear like with like guns and shit like it was like they were in it was like a SWAT situation like mm -hmm. it was unreal and like that presence would you know as you know as a 16 year old child who has been arrested probably numerous times where it hasn't been necessary Mm -hmm. when you would see that sort of presence like Mm -hmm. you would immediately be threatened like that's like such a normal fucking response Mm -hmm. and i'm yeah anyway there's so many there's so many issues anyway that was the that was part one part one wow um well we forgot to talk about at the start of the episode we do have three new patreons um uh, Laura Nicholson, Tiana Mayacourt, Mayacourt, and Felicia Gilkison. Gil- I'm going to reiterate. Felicia. I'm going to reiterate my opinion that we should not say the Patreon's full names. <laughs> should we edit that out? No, it's fine. I feel like it's okay. <laughs> well, thank you, um, Laura, Tiana, and Felicia for um, donating to the Patreon. If you would like to, they will be um, the link for our Patreon will be in the show notes. No pressure. We all know that it's like a really hard time for everybody at the moment. Um, basically, your Patreon money goes to supporting us as people, but also funding um, for the podcast. So like uh, literature research resources, um, just because books are expensive. Um, and we turns out you actually need to like read a lot to do something like this. Yeah. Um, my Amazon, um, my Kindle is like, oh, girl, you need to chill. And I'm like, can't. Must read at least one book a fortnight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And basically there's a lot of like Patreon-only content. Um, There's a little bit more of like get-to-know-you stuff of me and Ellen. So if you did want to, you know, find out more about the people that you listen to, I guess What McLeod's daughter's character we are, you can – Yeah. Oh, we actually haven't done that one. We haven't done that one yet. Um, Speaking of, it was uh, Miss Ellen Rose's birthday last week, so we all wish her a happy birthday. I think I gave her probably one of the best presents I've ever given everybody, um, given anybody, which was a personal video from Miles Pollard, who played Nick Ryan on McLeod's Daughters, and it was not only a gift for Ellen, but it was a gift for myself, because (laughs) it was literally the only thing that week that made me laugh, like it was so funny. It was one of the best things I've literally ever received. Um, Anyway, this is now a McLeod's Daughters fan podcast, Podcast. Um, but also do let us know if you would like us to do like a lifestyle um, and dating podcast, we're really keen on it, and maybe we can petition Zane to just let us do it, instead of making us jump through all of these hoops, (laughs) these hoops, you know? (laughs) 
Um, we will see you in a fortnight for the part two um, ep- um, episode of Ellen's work. I think you did an amazing job tonight, Ellen. Thank um, you. So we'll see you then. Bye. Okay. Goodbye. Hello, all you beautiful people. I'm Jared, and I'm the host with the most of that random podcast. Have you ever wondered what nurses do when they aren't saving lives, or what DJs do when they aren't spinning decks? Each week, me and a guest, and along with you, the listener, We'll dissect and look deep into these types of topics. It's heartfelt, funny, and filled with (laughs) OMG moments. But I won't tell you any. You'll have to come and listen for yourself. Just search that random podcast and have fun listening. Bye. Forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open with tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 Saloon, with PCP finance from only €499 per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Vorsprung durch Technik. Terms and conditions apply. When it comes to reviewing your finances, a good place to start is by reviewing your mortgage. It's something few people ever do, but if you never review your mortgage, you'll never know if there might be a better option. That's where the Ulster Bank Mortgage Team could help. Wherever you bank, be sure to talk to us and see if switching could make a difference. Just search Ulster Bank Switch. Ulster Bank. Help for what matters. Over 18s only. Ulster Bank Ireland DAC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.